Okay. JPB Gerald here on Standardized English, looking at episode four of season three here. Uh, we're talking about the inherent colonial structures of language education. Now, this will cross over into something we talked about earlier this year with the uh, Chumai Pai, um, talking about the inherent colonial structures of academia, but that's one of my common topics. But I want to talk in this episode with my guest, uh, Gabriella Licata, about the inherently colonial way that um, language education in academia, but just in general, is structured. Because I think sometimes we think, and I, I put forth, we need to change this and this and this about language teaching and so forth. But sometimes teachers get really say, okay, here's what I'm going to change in my classroom. Good, make those changes. But if the structure of the field doesn't change, and that's kind of what all my work is about, then we won't get anywhere. We need to change what we're doing in the classroom, but we need to change the structure too. And from her perspective in the language education department, um, Gabriella has a point of view that I think will be valuable on it. She wrote about it, uh, and we'll have a good discussion. Um, anyway, that's today's topic. I want to thank all my patrons. Uh, again, you are welcome and encouraged to donate via Patreon um, if you are able to afford it. We appreciate we. It's really me, but uh, my family too. We, you know, I'm not uh, begging for anything, but just in the sense that I do the Patreon thing because, you know, it helps me afford to do this with my time um, because I have, you know, a lot of, too many projects to do, but I'm at least able to make myself feel good about the fact that what I do, you know, the creative stuff that I do brings in a small amount of income and that people appreciate. So if you're able to afford it, and certainly if you can't, don't do anything, um, please follow the link in the show description on the website. Otherwise, I hope that you enjoy this conversation, and we will, um, oh, I should mention, if there, usually I thank new patrons in these episodes, but I've decided, because I have to write my dissertation this fall, that I recorded a bunch of these episodes early, like the first episode came out on Labor Day, and by the time the first episode came out, by the time any of you listened to the first episode, I'd already recorded, uh, six, so... <laughs> this one is number four and that means I have episodes lined up through part of November and you know uh, that means that anyone who's decided to donate in September or October I'm not going to get to thank you until a November episode so you know you will be thanked individually when it happens all right working away. Hey folks, so uh, welcome back to Standardized English. Uh, my name is JPD Gerald. You, I always say that, but I introduce myself on the intro and then I forget that I've done it and I introduce myself again. Um, so here with Gabriella Licata, uh, I'm going to let her introduce herself in a moment, but welcome to the show, to the conversation. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. My name is Gabriella Lacata. I'm a PhD candidate at UC Berkeley in the Department of Romance, Languages, and Literatures, where I focus primarily, very broadly, within sociolinguistics. Uh, I do a lot of work with language attitudes and ideologies, as well as critical pedagogy and a bit of phonetics and 
um, in linguistic anthropology more recently. So thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, that's a lot of related disciplines, you know, because I wouldn't right. have thought of that if I heard romance language and literature, or is that what it's, mm -hmm. yeah, I wouldn't have thought yeah. that, I, you know, linguistic anthropology would be, I mean, I know you can do that in there, but that if I think that, I think you want to be like a French professor or something, you know. Right. I mean, I think actually a few of us that have more recently joined the program um, have broken a bit of the mold where it's, his, historically, it's been a more historical linguistics program, and you have people kind of crossing over into literature or doing uh, corporal, corpus work um, and more, you know, I was, when I entered, I was more focused on language revitalization because I do some work with Genovese, which is an endangered language in Italy. Um, but yeah, I definitely have found my, I working with, with the education department in particular has been very influential in uh, shifting my work and my focus. So I think that that's a good place to start because I, when I look at structures, not just in academia, but in the way that these epistemologies are sort of constructed, right? Um, I am getting a doctorate in education in instructional leadership, which is just a meaningless phrase. Because what is that? Um, they asked us to define it in our first semester. And it's funny because what I wrote down, I actually seem to be doing. Um, which was like, I basically compared it to, to teacher leadership, right? Teacher leadership is, is at least somewhat straightforward in what it could mean, right? You're leading teachers. But instructional leadership, I said, okay, but who are the teacher leaders learning from? Mm -hmm. You know, so I said, right. although instructional sounds a little bit different, like you must be in the classroom. Um, I think I, I, I didn't know what this meant at the time. But what I said back in 2018 when I started was like, uh, you know, who's putting these ideas out there so that the people who are training the teachers have a base of knowledge to build off of. And so I don't know that that's necessarily what my program was expecting. And that's not exactly how I phrased it. But ultimately, in terms of all the stuff I do, I'm like an octopus, I'm trying in all these different places, I take what I need to pull it together. And I think that that has served me very well. Part of it is just being you know, whatever version of neurodiversion I am. And part of my, it's just my experience in the sense that I don't have any patience or focus, but <laughs> like, uh, I mean, you know, I'm just like, that seems interesting. I'm going to do that. Um, but I bring this up a lot on here and in the writing I do is that if I had just followed a standard path of mm -hmm. what, you know, was set out for me, it wouldn't have brought, you know, crossed any disciplines whatsoever, you know? Right. And I think that although my degree isn't in language per se, I mean, my master's is, but my doctorate isn't in that. I don't know that that's any different because this mine is in education studies, right? But or will be. But uh, I think that that is true, especially in language because there's so many ideologies tied up in. Um, so, because I know you wrote uh, about the inherently colonial structuring of language education. And that's mostly what we're going to talk about. And I think... Mm -hmm bringing up both of our experiences and how we, whether it's natural or we or effortful, I don't know. I mean, I know it took effort, but I, I, I don't want to say we were like tryhards about it. Um, broke free from what was set out for us right. is in sharp contrast to what is expected of 
the language field. No, I that's I think that's really interesting, and I've been thinking a lot about. I re, I actually went back and read my original statement of purpose um, when I applied to all these PhD programs because never do <laughs> I, I know, but I was curious to know what you know what I set out to do, and um, while a lot of what I did set out to do is not what I'm doing, which is mostly like, I mean, I'm, it informs my research, but I really was set out to do kind of production research and language variation and change. And I, I tried so hard and I, and I hated it. Um, I mean, I really like the research and I like to learn about it, but I don't like doing that kind of, re I don't like carrying out those research projects. But I look back to when I, this is going back a long time ago, 13 years ago when I was getting a I was started a master's program in public policy. And my very first research paper was a legal paper that was citing legal cases that was looking at discrimination in bilingual education. And I kind of forgot about that paper. And then I went off and I didn't get that master's. I didn't finish. I didn't want to. And I went off and I did other things and I learned Spanish. And I find myself back in that same kind of I got my master's, I wrote a paper about linguistic discrimination, used that to get into schools, explored all these different topics. And like, here I am still very motivated by those themes. So I think it, to a point, you know, the passion is where, you know, our passions kind of lie where they are. Um, and we can explore a lot of topics, but I think it always, to me, it always comes back to discrimination and ideology, however it manifests. You know, because I think that's similar to, because I, I started, you know, teaching overseas and then came back and I got my master's and um, we didn't really talk about ideologies much in my master's at all. Um, if the word ideology was mentioned, I'm not mm -hmm. sure. It may have been, but it was not centered as a discussion point. And I did that for several years afterwards. And then I, the job that I have now isn't in that field, but I just figured when I applied, when I applied for the, the, job, I was not the job for the degree, my statement of purpose or problem statement, whatever it was, um, was, you know, related to language education, but I was coming to it from a different angle than where I am mm -hmm. now. The angle right. I was coming through, uh, the angle through which I was coming to it was much more, I don't know if it was deficit based, it was much more like I'm going to fix a problem. I did not think the problem was the students, right. but mm -hmm. I didn't, I also didn't think the problem was the ideology because I wasn't thinking about that at all. Right, likewise. And, and then what's interesting is I do wonder, would I have been accepted if I had, you know, really focused on what I'm doing now? Now, of course, chicken or egg, right? I wouldn't be focused on what I'm doing now if I hadn't been through all this other right. and thinking, right? Mm -hmm. But if I'd had a, I think that I wouldn't have been, not because they would have been harsh on it, but because I wouldn't have been able to refine the ideas into a coherent, you know, right. statement of purpose. Right. And no, I, I yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh no, I mean I, it's the same for me where I, I I have three degrees prior to the PhD, and I feel like I had to go in that exact order to get to the PhD that I, I wouldn't have had these. I wouldn't have had these research ideas had I not done my undergrad, my master's, my teaching credential, and then a PhD. Like it had to go in that order. That's interesting. I, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, but but that to go back to the to the overarching topic of structures, then mm-hmm. the structures right. don't want that. Right. Right. They the want, stru- yeah. They want, they want you to go into the PhD right out of undergrad. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And, they and want, that's how it's designed. Well, there's a couple of things awesome. with that design. Because I think one way that that can be really harmful to people is that a lot of time they don't end up with any work experience um, mm-hmm. aside from what's involved in their degree, right? So right. they finish, finish undergrad and then they're 22 or whatever and then they go into PhD or a doctoral program because mine's EUD, but you get my point. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, as precarious as the academic field can be, you have no choice. You haven't ever done anything else. Right. So, so you better get something in there. Uh, and they know that you don't have a lot of choices. So why would they treat you better? Right. And they, and you know, when you, then you have older students come in <laughs> and break the mold and, you know, 22000 or whatever, 16 to $22,000 a year is not enough in the Bay Area, but most places. Um, but you know, there's this idea that it is enough if you're young, cause you know, you're willing to suffer, you got to suffer, you have lower standards of living, et cetera, which I'm not saying those are true. That's just the perception. And so I came into the PhD at 31 and I had, you know, a standard of living that people criticized me for. So I was, you know, constantly having, I was, had two or three jobs. It was, it took COVID to get me into a position where I didn't need more than what I had from the university, but I had a, I had a lectureship for a year, which I was criticized for doing because you're not supposed to have more than one teaching assignment. Um, and, you know, I just looked at admin and I said, well, if, unless you want me taking out loans, which I don't want to do, this is how it has to go. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with teaching more than one class. It, it's a lot of work, but but, you know, it's, again, it's this, it's a very, uh, and it's this kind of sink or swim mentality where you, you're able to do it or you're not, uh, but you have to be creative oftentimes because it's, it's a tough ride. Right. So however many years. Yeah. That, you know, I, I think, cause my program is a little different in the sense that it was more designed people who are working. Right. But that's mm-hmm. just because it's different designed that way. But right. like, I still think that mine is deliberately designed differently from the standard. You know, so because the standard is very like, you must pay your dues, you must ascend the staircase in this particular way. And I think that that goes along with a lot of language ideology, see, Mm -hmm. Uh, because I think that there is still an idea underneath the way language, not just English, but a lot of English um, is thought of that you must learn it in this order. Mm -hmm. You know, and we can have all these discussions about we want to change the ideologies, but at the core of it, there's still an idea, an assumption that language is learned a certain way. Right. Like one way. Mm-hmm. Right. And you can do all these different bells and whistles, but it's, it's one way. And so whenever I see these tips and tricks and all this stuff, it's all about different ways to get to that same core idea that you are going to learn language in this order. You know, and I, I remember one professor telling me that there is an order in which people, you know, acquire language. And and that's why it's all thought of like as like a math project. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. insulting math. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, there's even now there's there's kind of these challenges to wh- how people should be learning math and well, you right. know, should kids should, so 
but there is a, you know, a very generally accepted order. I mean, let's take Spanish, for example, or any of the romance languages where you're, what you're learning in year one. Uh, I mean, it's, it's very, it's very standardized across the board. Um, and that presented real problems when I was tasked with teaching heritage learners or heritage speakers, because I had no idea what to do. And I wasn't taught, I was, there was, I mean, when I presented, I did a presentation in my, in a course in my credential program about heritage learners and heritage speakers, and nobody knew what I was talking about, not even the professors. So I had zero resources. Um, and I was just, I mean, and that's really what pushed me for the, to go for the PhD, but it, I mean, it, there's no, I mean, you can just throw the rules out when it comes to that subset of learners. And I think that's why there's such, so much resistance is they're really challenged. They really challenge the status quo of language learning, uh, which is awesome. But um, yeah, there, there is a, a I mean, and, and yesterday was the first day back at school and I had my pedagog, my meeting with our pedagogical instructor. And it was just, I hadn't been in that position for over a year, like in a meeting with them. And it was just prescriptive, after prescriptivism like and I was just getting really upset and I'm like oh like I haven't been in this position in a while and I forgot how angry it makes me <laughs> well because you know the that's not just individuals points of views and ideologies right, right? that's that's the way right. that the concept of language education mm-hmm. is structured Right. Right. Like, you know, when we say that we want to focus on descriptivism or we want to challenge prescriptivism or like I wrote in one of the articles about like giving prescriptivism in the other direction where the students get to call out the language and things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, this isn't these aren't just bugs in their features in in the way that that language education is built, you know, Uh, it's it's all, it's not just, but it's very similar to the, you know, the banking system that, you know, as Freire talks about, right, and just an inherent, like, flaw in the language learner, unless they're a, I don't know, a white person learning French or something like that, mm-hmm. um, then the person isn't flawed, um, right. and I learned, because I, you know, I took French class, not white, but still, I was in the class with the white people, and uh, I think of the way that I, I and my classmates were thought of in learning the language and all of the enrichment and so forth that we were supposed to get versus the way that, quote unquote, language learners or English language learners are seen in their schools. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're seen as a, a burden, like, how could you not know this, right? Right. You know, and especially when it comes to the experience I have in adult education, right? Those people are are thought of as defective right you know like how could you not know this you know um and they're 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 basically thought of as children not that children should be thought of that way but still when you think when you think of an adult as a child it's demeaning um and uh i think that there is a way well not a way i don't really know how 
we can completely overturn this sort of colonial structure because ultimately right. it's 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 just sort of baked in there. I mean, I'm trying to in my ways, but <laughs> like so. I mean, let's 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 talk a little bit about what you were writing in in, in your article mm-hmm. because I think that it really goes into a lot of these points in a brief way. It's not very long, but. Um, right. You know, like, so the article is called A Racial Linguistic Perspective on the Structure of Language Programs and Departments. So if you uh, want to tell people what you were basically saying there, um, which is kind of what we were already talking about, but. Sure. Yeah. So I was invited to, so there's a, a, a the Berkeley Language Center at UC Berkeley, which is a physical and kind of abstract structure that brings language instructors together. And it's really designed in part to kind of appeal and to protect and to enrich the instruction of lecturers on campus. Um, because we have a significant amount of, of people lecturing or that are considered um, integral to certain language departments, but that do not are not tenure track employees. So some departments have um, some of the, the least, the less commonly taught languages have only lecturers that are teaching the languages. Um, so they're very important. And Berkeley has over 60 languages. Um, so it's a great resource and center for to bring people together. And it was started by Claire Cramps back in the early 90s. And um, in any case, so they invited us to, they invited a, repre- a representation of grad students and lecturers and tenure track professors and um, to, to a roundtable discussion that basically wanted to address what the future of language departments was. And my take on it was um, with all this, you know, this recent kind of, this recent surge of language as social justice and uh, decolonization, what does that mean for language departments? Because there are a lot of people talking about it. There are a lot of people doing research on it. Um, but the actual structure, but also mentality within departments is still very old fashioned. What, you know, and what they call traditional, which is really more oppressive. Um, so I, you know, I did, I basically did a, a kind of a race, an overview, a very light overview of racial linguistics. And I took a paper that Bill Van Patten had written a white paper that he had written a few years back that challenged the presence or the lack of presence of language acquisitionists in language programs across uh, research universities in the United States. And I actually had a discussion with him about two months ago, a month ago on the phone, um, which was wonderful. It was very helpful. And so I I wanted to apply his parameters because his take was, why do we have non-language acquisitionists in charge of language learning programs. Only it's really language acquisitionists who know how people learn language and they should be in charge of designing language programs. And so I took that a step further and I thought, well, if people are trying to decolonize or trying to create that inclusive environment, which I think decolonized people aren't really using that word, who aren't really interested in what it means, but um, they're using, you know, let's create an inclusive and welcoming classroom. But to really do that, you need, you know, sociolinguists and linguistic anthropologists that are invested in whatever kinds of decolonization we can do. 
So I, I took Bill Manhattan's approach and I counted how many sociolinguists and how many linguistic anthropologists are in these departments that he, I did a small sample. Um, I'm expanding, I'm doing a fuller analysis for uh, a, a larger paper, a longer paper, but I did, I just looked at West Coast institutions. So public and private, um, the, some of the UCs, Stanford and USC, and nothing's really changed since Bill Van Patten wrote that paper. Um, and the addition of sociolinguists and linguistic anthropologists was didn't really change the numbers very much. So the departments are still, French and Spanish departments are still largely literature dominated. Um, and generally in terms of, I mean, my experience and experience of people who are writing about this um, find that this, this view on language is very, is rooted in very colonial ideas of, you know, what is proper academic language, what's appropriate. Uh, and that's how my department is. So I was inspired to write this short paper because while my professor, my advisor, who's the only linguist in my department, when he was on sabbatical, um, the rest of the department voted to remove the linguistics PhD program from the department without him knowing. <laughs> so that was kind of a, an impetus to, to begin this project, but also I've always really enjoyed Van Patten's paper. Um, so it kind of stuck with me. And so, yeah, so Berkeley, UC Berkeley is attempting among other institutions to become a Hispanic serving institution. And so that made me think, what does that really mean in terms of language learning? Because as we know, language is often as a discriminatory avenue, it's often ignored. Um, so we don't think about you know, linguistic discrimination within the university. We think about, you know, there, there are some kind of more concrete areas that the university is focusing on, um, but language is generally not one of them. So that, those were kind of my inspirations. Um, and I'll stop there and let you talk or let you respond. Uh, no, it's, that's, that's great. I think that um, I have two points. The first one I want to mention is a question. So I guess it's not a point. Uh, with language acquisitionists, because I find that that you're both right, but also there's a lot of like really harmful language acquisitionists out there. Right, right. Yeah, uh, I mean, I didn't. My focus was not the on the language acquisition aspect because I I do there are there are com conflicting. Um, yeah, there are very conflicting. Even like those that those language acquisitionists that seem to be very. I don't know, generative in their discussion of, you know, I mean, like take for instance, the kind of the recent, um, I don't know what I would call it, discrepancy of views between like Flores and Cummins and how like, it's so subtle to most people, but it's not if you're in it. So, I mean, I, and I, I, I tend to, to, to go to the Flores side uh, because I'm really into translanguaging and, and what it means, but Many a pe many people will think that Cummings is that's a perfectly fine view on language acquisition, and that's like that's a progressive view. And I mean, in any regards, it is. But there there are subtle differences between what's going on now, you know, on the Flores side, Flores et al. And um, and so, I mean, I, I yeah, language acquisition is not my specialty nor my my focus in this project, but. Some of the people who have spent their time trolling me around the internet are language acquisitionists because mm -hmm. um, they, 
you know, because I'm more of a conceptual writer and mm -hmm. they think, well, you can't prove this. Um, on the other hand, like, it's not not useful to be able to describe how people can right. do things to learn mm -hmm. languages, right. right? It's just like, how do you balance mm -hmm. the fact that you need to respect the people and their existing language practices and you can also develop a pedagogy that helps them acquire more language if that's what they want. Right. It's just that people get people get really too far in the what well, just need to acquire. We just need to acquire. It's like, well, don't worry about who they are. I just need to acquire. I just remember in my program, my master's program, we talked about the the evolution from the grammar translational method to the communicative method. Right. Mm -hmm. But this is that's like the 70s. So right. and then they right. didn't really they we kind of went to communicative and they just were like, eh, and that's it. Um right. And you can like you can you, the communicative method is useful, it's still useful, right. but doesn't mean that you can't that like translanguaging can't fit into that. It's you know, so there's always this um like that we move linearly, like linearly, but we not necessarily. Um we can use, you know, in translation has its place as well. Uh so yeah. I, I'm there with you on that. Yeah, and 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 the, you know, and and the problem I have to sort of go along with what you're saying with the sort of weird defensiveness that Cummins gets into, mm -hmm. um, and he's not the only one, but this is what we're talking about, right. um, is that uh, people who don't know any better. And I don't mean malicious people. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm if I'm a grad student and I hadn't spent my time really looking into racial linguistics, social linguistics, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing, right? If I'm if I'm me in 2010 is what I'm saying, mm -hmm. right? Now, uh, in terms of what I know, obviously the world will be different, but you know what I mean. Um, right. And I see that, and I don't know who Flores or Cummings is per se. Like I've heard their names yeah. vaguely, but I don't know that I've read the stuff, like. I could read that and they just seem like they're just equal people having a discussion, right? Mm -hmm. All I know about them is their affiliations and right. they both have, you know, like they're respected in that way. Like if you don't dig below the surface, but one of the yeah. things is that like, if you are looking at it from the way that academia and language education would like you to, that, you know, someone who's really quote unquote traditional will say, well, go look at the evidence, right? Right. And you go into the literature and Cummins is going to be able to point to buckets that support what he says, not because he's more right. right, but because the traditional literature has been on his side forever. Right. And there's so much of it. Right. There's so much of it. I mean, there's like, yeah. So, you know, that is, whereas, um, you know, I could go and look and find things for to support what Flores is saying. But again, right. if I'm just looking at it like weighing equal sizes or something like mm -hmm. that, um, it's it's going to be a problem. So, right. you know, it's um th that that's the thing. Like I think it's actually depending, I mean, what what he's actually saying, because he's been kind of dismissive and all that, but the real issue to me is that for the third party observer who doesn't necessarily have, who, who doesn't believe that they have a dog in the fight. They're just like, here's mm -hmm. two people debating, right? What happens is all of the weight goes to what has existed for 40 years. Right. And 
it, it, it makes it much harder for people who are pushing something new to gain a, an intellectual foothold. Now, Flores will be fine, but I'm just saying like people trying to right. do what he's doing, you know? Right. Well, even if, I mean, it's just a really common or a really like a lay person's example. I, have a, I had a friend once tell me that a school near her was implementing a bilingual program uh, bilingual education program and she's like how great right and I'm like well I don't know and let me see how it's structured and you know if it's you know one of those programs that is basically additive and it's reducing you know the, the home language over the course of eight years until at the end by the end you're not getting any of the home language everything is English and it's those programs that are relying on you know that 40 years of literature to substantiate why that is justified. Um, and I think it's so, these ideologies of, of having a correct or right way to speak or an academic way to speak and write uh, are so normal to people that they can't imagine how that could be dismantled or how that could be undone. It's so, it's so hard to explain to people that those are just inventions, you know? Um, and so I think that's what the, you know, the work that we're seeing with race linguistics and, uh, I mean, that is really expanding into so many different disciplines is really fascinating. And I think over time, you know, it'll become, it will become more, I guess, normalized to under, to know what it means to, to create or to, to kind of doctor academic language, but, but it is hard to explain that to, you know, I mean, I'm sure you have teacher friends that, I have a lot of teacher friends that I talk to them now and I cringe. I cringe about the things that they're saying, like calling, I, I, you know. I kind of stopped talking to them, but. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's hard. Like yeah, the, to the refer to Spanglish as, yeah, to refer to Spanglish or Black English as slang. And I'm just like, oh, like that stings. But it's like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to, you know, remedy that with them. I just, you know, I basically say, no, it's not slang. But that, but it's like, how do I convince you? You've been, you've just been, you've been trained to, you know, teach that way, and you've been doing it for decades. Yeah, like I said, I stopped talking to them. But yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, especially over the last year and a half, I'm like, I don't have to see you, so I'm not gonna talk. Right. To you. But you know, I know that there are people who don't have that option. And right. I also, so like I'm, t I'm making the choice because I can and it's better for me, but right. I have to get to the, you know, and, and, and I don't know that the people, cause like the news and just on the internet, the really angry people, they're much louder, but there still really aren't as many of them as the people who just are trying to move on, put their head down and keep going. Right. right? And that's, that's really, the yeah. That, that's the people who we need to reach is the people who, mm -hmm. you know, are just like, this is all I know and I'm just going to keep going. And they believe it's slang because that's what they've been taught and right. they're not like hateful about it, right? The actively, you know, the, you know what I'm saying? Because the system mm -hmm. of coloniality is, 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 is keeping that large mass of people moving in one direction more so than it is encouraging individual hatred. I think one right. way that it, what it reminds me of, and this is a metaphor I was thinking of, um, is that they can't even see what another way would be. It's like looking, right. in, it's like looking into water and you can't see the bottom, right? Mm -hmm. And I can think of one time when 
I was in, I was in Ecuador. I was in like the Amazon and not the river, but the jungle. And we, one of the things that we did was every night, and I didn't know this was happening. So I didn't bring a bathing suit because I'm like, there's just crocodiles. There's no way I'm going. And they're like, no, we're all going to swim. And I'm like, how are we? (laughs) But the we had seen crocodiles like that that day. Or actually, they were, <laughs> they were actually caimans, but whatever. Um, and we had seen piranha. And then uh-huh. like in the, it's like sunset and they're like, all right, we're going to swim. I'm like, what, what do you mean? I can't see <laughs> the bottom of this. There could be, right? And they're like, it's fine. And then the guy gets out and he jumps in the water. And I'm like, uh, okay, you can't see the bottom because it was sunset, right? Right. And because it was dark and they get out and I jump in the water and I hit the ground and I didn't realize that the ground was right there so it's sort of like that like it's like I can't see the bottom of this right I'm not going to jump into this water I don't even have the bathing suit because I didn't have a bathing suit um (laughs) and if you think like how that's like that's all just what's really forming that narrow view of the water is like fear right you know and yeah, you literally, you, you, you can't, you don't have an image of what could be there. All you have is, well, I, well, I saw the, the, the Cayman and, and, you know, which I guess would be what my kid's going to do poorly on the test. I don't know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, all you see is the things that are, are, are terrifying, but then once your feet hit the ground, you, you in your head know what the ground looks like. And when your right. feet feet hit the ground, you can start to form an image of what it could be. You still can't see through all of the water, but you can see where mm-hmm. the destination is. You know, so I think a lot of a lot of the work in pushing forward here, and it seems so not substantive. And I have all these other plans that I don't need to get into. Mm-hmm. But like <laughs> in, in terms of the writing and 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 this stuff mm-hmm. that I do is like trying to help people see what the bottom not the bottom, I don't want to think of it like it's bad, but like what, what it looks like if you look through right. the water, water, you can't yeah. see all the way through. See the options. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, and I I had proposed this to, I proposed a, a pilot, kind of a pilot teaching experiment to my language coordinator, which would basically be uh, teaching a, an intermediate Spanish class using, um, it's Patowski and someone else, Kim Patowski. I want to say Lapidushin, I'm not sure. Um, They basically wrote a a textbook that is focused on variation, language variation in the Spanish speaking world. So you're learning Spanish, but you're learning it with variation, um, which is, you know, one aspect of of what I would talk about in an expanded paper is that there, you know, the, the Spanish that we teach our students doesn't exist. It's not like a real Spanish. Uh, I really, I think we should be in California, we should be learning the Spanish that is spoken in California, um, which are many Spanishes, but there is a, we should be learning Spanglish. We should be learning. I mean, I don't, I don't see anything wrong with that. Um, Plenty of people do, of course, but, but, you know, and and those who are in New York should be learning a Spanish repertoire that you're going to hear in New York. but we I, I, don't do that. It's like we learn, yeah. I was just saying, that's what we were writing in the first part of the article, right? That we should, you right. know, if you're in charge of English, like, where where are you, right? If you're right. in the Bronx, you should probably be learning, for example, if you would be learning a Dominican New York version of English, 
right? Right, or why not, not? But even more than learning that, it shouldn't just be, okay, I'm the teacher. I came up with the Dominican version of English for you to right. learn. Like you should be getting from your students, okay, what do you use when you're not here? Right, and like, what you know, what links you to the community? Right. Because our Spanish, I mean, our, our Spanish learners, our second language learners, don't come I mean they generally don't do anything with the community unless it's like that you know we have this there's often this neoliberal agenda within the school of like you oh you have to do this and that and you know got to go volunteer or you have to do that for your major or you have to do that for your cv and then you know but like I I think Spanish could be taught as a cert like in service learning as well but it's not often there are people who do it and they're inspiring and I don't I don't, I'm, I'm curious to know more about that, but, um, but you know, it's, they're, they're learning and, but nobody doubts that like a Puerto Rican can communicate with an Argentinian. Of course they can. So why do we think that if we, if we teach our students and, um, you know, a U.S. Spanish repertoire of some sort, that they're not going to be able to communicate in Spain. It's like, again, it's fear. It's always this like fear of, nope, we need to prepare them for this and that, and it needs to be standardized and it has to be regular. And um, so, so that's one, go ahead. I was just saying, you end up being able to only to, I mean, like, if you learn enough of the language, of course you can communicate with anybody who speaks it, but like, you just end up sounding like you learned it in school. And right, and, and there's, and then you can't really integrate into a community very well. I mean, you can, but it's hard. It's, you're not, I mean, I, I learned Spanish. I had a Guatemalan boyfriend who taught me Spanish. He refused to speak English. And I remember by the time being frustrated, but I look back and I'm like, bless him. Like I'm kind of amazing in a sense. Um, but I learned like a Guatemalan Spanish, like really like very, like from people who had been here for only a few years. And, and then I started learning in school and I started like forgetting how to like use kind of the more like Guatemalan like jerga or slang or how to joke around and I was worried about like like we don't, I lost the pragmatic like once I wasn't in that community I lost that pragmatic knowledge um, which is actually something I've been thinking about lately is how we don't teach students pragmatics really um, and you can't pretend you can't teach the pragmatics of the entire Spanish or English speaking world, but you can talk about the pragmatics of the people that are around you. Um, and yeah, so, so heritage learners, you know, come in, like they have that knowledge. And I was just listening to a podcast on, I was just listening to the vocal fries about a, a medical translation and interpretation where, you know, heritage learners make great interpreters because they have all this pragmatic knowledge. Um, and we don't, you know, I don't think that we're trained to, as teachers, we're not trained to kind of exploit that as a really rich pedagogical tool. Um, but, you know, I haven't taught heritage language at, at Berkeley. I don't know if I will, but I'm curious to know, you know, what those classes look like, because I, I feel like they're still fairly, very standardized. Yeah, I mean, I think about you know, part of me, you know, there's a part of me that's like, ah, I'm just building entirely new things unrelated. It's like, okay, great. That's all right. But how are you going to do that, Justin? Um, but then I think more, more uh, realistically, and I'm like, why? Like, I don't know. Does something become a textbook 
just because it's used in class. I don't know, but right. whatever. Teach teaching material, mm -hmm. right? Teaching material, whatever you want to call it, that really goes through like I don't know where where wherever a school is, and you know, here's what the language is in this. Look, this here's what English, and it, you know, just because I'm in an mm -hmm. English space, here's what English is like in this right. place. Here's what English is like in this place. You know, obviously, you're going to leave a lot out. It's in any one book is going to leave mm -hmm. a lot out. But like all of these things are presented, and you, if you did it alphabetically or something, all these things would be presented equally, you right. know? Um, and uh, you would start by the end to see themes of like, huh, each of these different groups of people is finding meaning in a similar way. You know, like what is being done to create that meaning is different, but they are doing what they can to convey the meaning that they need to each other. Mm -hmm. Because that's really what it's about. I think it's about creating and, and, and building meaning together. You know, um, I mean, there's more to it than that, but that's one of the main components, I think, of language. Whereas, you know, academic language, like no one talks like that. Right uh literally no one because sometimes I try to read the papers and I'm like I can't say this out loud um, yeah it's not natural sounding yeah and people say well written is different than spoken yes but it shouldn't be that different <laughs> right right I <laughs> mean know? it's interesting when you when you hear I'll sometimes hear um people who acquired English later on in life I'll hear them just talking in like in regular kind of casual conversation and I'll be like oh I can tell that you learned like a British kind of English like a very again a really generalized British English or I can tell that you learned a really generalized American English but it doesn't quite neither quite sound like very natural or very naturalized uh it's yeah it's it's like very textbook sounding and and I think that sometimes you know I, I mean, that, that can go for my Spanish, I'm sure. Um, I speak Italian too. I grew up speaking Italian and I'm ousted out of Italian circles often because I don't sound like other, I mean, I've had like Italians make, I've had Italian, they're very prescriptive, make fun of me or they immediately stop, start speaking English where I'm speaking Italian just fine. Uh, but, you know, I speak Italian American repertoire um, and and so it's just interesting how, you know, there's kind of these accepted notions of how we should speak, but then also some things, I mean, don't quite sound natural when you're learning them in that textbook sense or in that prescriptive sense. So yeah, again, we're not really teaching pragmatic ability, I don't think, um, or we're not able to according to the standards. It's, it's actually really insidious in a way because especially with these colonial languages, right? English, but a lot of them, right? You know, you could say this is unintentional, but I don't think it is. I, I don't think it's like a mustache twirling thing, but I do think it's intentional over however many hundred years. Like you are basically saying to the colonial subjects, learn this language because you need this language to make money, mm -hmm. right? To, right. be, to be accepted, et cetera, but ultimately to make money. Um, and they're not saying though, you have to get rid of all of these aspects of your 
communicative identity to be accepted, right? Um, you know, that's why it's like accent reduction and all that stuff, right? You know, right. Um, and if you can't do it, it's your fault because you didn't work hard enough at getting rid of your accent or changing the way that you communicate. Mm -hmm. um, and if you do do it, if you get closer to what I would argue is closer to whiteness in a lot of ways, right, depending on the avenue mm -hmm. and depending on the language, then your reward is not the uplift of your community. It's you yourself may get right. a short-term benefit. It's like this, it's a neo, a total neoliberal agenda of, I did it, look, like I did it. And you kind of serve as this shiny example. Right. And, you know, there's stuff that I've been reading about how, like, places will get economically devastated by the acts of the West. And then they'll be like, mm -hmm. here, why don't you learn some English so you can get out of there? Right. Right. <laughs> like, save yourself. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, hey, we destroyed your country. Would you like to learn English or Spanish or whatever uh, right. so that you can escape this place that we destroyed around you? Um, and, you know, it's the same way that like they used to just come into countries and be like, hey, we're taking everything. If you learn this language, maybe you can come with us. Um, <laughs> maybe you can. Right. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you not. Can, you can be closer to our ideal, um, but never all the way there. Right. Um, unless you help us with this anti-blackness project, but you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot of, right. you know, it's like, it's like if you, well, you know, um, there's a lot of that. And it's, it's just very conditional, both affection and conditional valuing of people. And I think a lot of, because colonialism isn't just coloniality or it isn't just about domination and that sort right. of thing, you know, it's also helping to determine who is, is is worth who will help with the ongoing project because it's, mm -hmm. it's an ongoing like ceaseless project right it just takes different forms and mm -hmm. um i think that a lot especially in language because language has this little halo around it that we're doing all this mm -hmm. virtuous stuff you know people in these departments think that um you know they're really really doing inspiring um valuable work Mm -hmm. and uh they're ultimately just upholding the same ideologies just from a different angle right well i think it's um what is really pervasive in the u.s like when we we're just talking about like neoliberalism but also that's you know that's also becoming very or what we think of europe as very socialist it's really not that you know it's a they're very mixed economies but i i also do a lot of work on italian and I mean, the neoliberalization of, of languages in Italy is just, it's even, I mean, it's, it's parallel in a lot of ways um, where you have, it's one of the most linguistically diverse countries and you have, you know, more than 20 languages that are definitely or severely endangered because of these, you know, these notions that, I mean, that those languages tear the nation apart, you know, and then, but what, that what those oppressive linguistic policies are doing are really are really taking away people's identities. Um, and so thinking about how, you know, what has happened to bilingual education around here in California, but I'm sure across the country, 
is how they, you know, I think that Flores wrote a paper about this too, just thinking about how the bilingual education programs were first designed to uplift those who are, who are bi rising bilinguals. And now they're, you know, these neoliberal tools of elitism. Um, and I mean, they're not helping who they intended to help. Uh, and the people who need them have very little control over how they're run or designed. Uh, I mean, at least in the kind of broad general aspect of it. I'm sure there are more successful stories, but a lot of it is, you know, who's, I, I think we, I was just reading something about like the, you know, like the small elite white group that is in charge of, you know, the school board or whatnot. Um, and so we see how that, how, it, you know, what we see, we see this, oh, the violin, oh, those are great programs. It's like, but who are they actually serving? You know, in my neighborhood, which is a fairly expensive neighborhood in New York, or in Queens, um, mm -hmm. which has a lot of East Asian professionals and then some white people. And then if you look at the zip code, there's actually a pretty large amount of black people and Latinx people here, mm -hmm. but a lot of them live in the housing project. <laughs> so the zip code, if you are right. someone, like if I tell someone, sometimes I've said this in my presentations, like look up your zip code and see what the demographics are. And they were like, you know, my zip code is not that bad. And I'm like, uh, uh, um, <laughs> but if anyway, but there's a lot of, a lot of daycares, people move here and they have kids. Right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I am a child, so I'm not mm -hmm. saying anything about it, although we lived here a while before that. But anyway, all this daycare is super expensive, which is not specifically a New York thing, but right. um, a lot of these daycares will say, and you get Mandarin immersion, right? Mm -hmm. You get Mandarin immersion. Now, there are genuinely a lot of people from China living here, right? So you could say to yourself, well, these are clearly catering to these kids, and their families. First of all, possibly, but not really. <laughs> like the, right. the way they're being marketed and people I see coming out of the doors, it's mostly the white families who are like, uh-huh, I'm gonna get this kid speaking Mandarin. You know, right. it's an economic benefit to your infant, well, not infant, but to your toddler, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. especially because although there are people from China, the people who live here, some of them are from China, some of them are from Japan. So it's like, it's not like it's, it's, it's all Chinese right. people who live here, right? There's people from mm -hmm. many different East Asian countries who live here, but it's clearly like, there's no Korean immersion daycare around here right. or for the Korean families or a Japanese immersion daycare in this neighborhood, right? right? One of the kids in, in my daycare, Generally speaking, they speak Spanish, if only because the woman who runs it speaks Spanish. Uh, right. But it's not like, and you're gonna get an immersion. In she just she just speaks Spanish. <laughs> like that's just that's just right. Know, that's not like that. There's no program set up for it. Right. It is not unlikely that he eventually will pick some up, but we didn't pick it right. because of that. We didn't even think about that. She just happens to speak Spanish. Um, but, you know, so it's always this, ben you know, who, who, it, it, even the things mm -hmm. that start off as good. This is why I sometimes get really nervous about putting ideas out there that are supposed to be mm -hmm. good for oppressed groups, is that if I just were to communicate to the oppressed group, that would be great. But the fact of the matter is, I need to, like, you know, have a job or something. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I have to put it out into the world. 
Um, right. And once it gets out in the world, it can be snatched up. So right. then, um, I mean, it's always like the, this was a really unpopular opinion I had at the beginning of kind of the Black Lives Matter resurgence last year, where my partner at the time kind of chastised me for this, but I said, this is going to be different because white people are getting on board. And they were like, well, that's not cool. Like Black Lives Matter has been a thing for a while. And I'm like, I know it is. I mean, I know it has been and it's, and it, it has been big, but I'm like, something's different this time around. And it's because you have all these white people on the streets. <laughs> it's like, that's unfortunate, but it's also, uh, it's, it's, re- it's, it's like we're talking about, like, it's this reality that we live in where you need to appeal. You can't just appeal to the oppressed, as you just said, it's because you need, it's like, in some respect, you need white people to get on board um with certain things and and that sucks you know and I say that as a white person um but it sucks yeah I mean when you think about this because if we it's unfortunate but if we did not need you all to at the least get out of the way then this would have been finished a long time ago like like at the very least what we need from you is to move yeah right Mm -hmm. right? you know what we really need you all to do is like relinquish certain things or hand certain things to us but depending on what thing you're talking about yeah between what thing you're talking about there's a lot of ways there's a lot of of ideas out there and these ideas have existed for a long time but uh, i'm not trying to claim that i'm the first to come up with ideas how white people can help but like we also have to know who our audience is when we're speaking towards the public i know what schools i went to not because i'm special but because i know where i went and I know who I can best communicate with. So a lot of the talking on here is not explicitly to, but is mostly going to be consumed by white people, mm-hmm. maybe white academics or white educators or whatever. I know who's listening to this. Hi. And, you know, I want them to really challenge the way that they think about things because, um, and, you know, I think that there is a value to a person who is, trying to be really explicit about the fact that you you, you really do have to do something. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, this story I've told a couple of times, but I'm going to tell it again because I think it's funny. Um, and, you know, don't be like the person who I met last, when all the Black Lives Matter stuff was resurging last summer and who told me that she, she you know, she spends her days walking the streets for me. And, you know, I'm like, all right, lady. Um, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. And I had like, I had my son with me. And so she was like talking about, she's like doing right. it for him. It's like, you don't look, just, you don't need to break. Um, and she don't pers- worked, this is like, don't personalize this. Yeah. She also like worked at a really oppressive charter school because she had a shirt, she had a t-shirt on school. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. So it's like, oh, oh, that's right. a whole nother podcast <laughs> discussion. Yeah. So it's like you, but like, this is the thing I use that in a, in a, in a chapter mm-hmm. I wrote that will come out someday. Cause you know, how it is. um, like that theory that they, that people have that they're, they're already, I'm already on the right side. Yeah. You know, and, uh, it's, it's hard to dislodge that from people. Right. You know, um, so many times last year, whether it was, it, you know, especially in the language field, because the first language of magazine article I wrote was talking about all the statements they put out, all the right. statements, they'll put out statements, you know, and 
so many of the statements were talking about all the things that they thought that they already were doing right. Oh, geez. You know, they're, they're like, you know, say something about racism, fine. And then they were like, you know, or this organization has always stood up for people of this and this. For this. Mm-hmm. Like, stop, shut up. Just say, say you're right. going to do better. I mean, you, you, it's not even be a good statement. Just, you don't have to pat yourself on the back for doing nothing. Right. These people think that they're doing like this is my fundamental thing with language. And it's why my entire book is about the rot at the core of language education is that language education thinks it is inherently virtuous. Right. And but that's not too different from colonialism because there's a few people who think they're that are like statists and they think that they want to hurt people. But mostly they think they're doing something good for the colonial subjects. Right. You know, they think I mean, that it's they're like, helping. Yeah. I mean, it's like you mentioned, you know, 2010. Like, no, I, I mean, I think about myself as this was when I was just about to start my master's degree, which I'm happy I did that before I got my credential because I did a lot of sociolinguistics. However, I mean, I was, you know, I had that approach when I was teaching that additive approach of, you know, well, we need to, I have, you know, Spanish speakers that need to learn academic Spanish. Um, and, you know, I, ha- but, but it, it didn't work. I knew something was wrong and I didn't know what to do about it. But I remember, you know, and I think part of all of this, everything we're talking about too, is just being able like, like this person you met, you know, this example you gave of the protester, like to look back and be like, you know, I wasn't always doing this or I didn't always have this knowledge like we're learning, we're adjusting with the times and we're moving forward. But like, I wasn't, you know, this amazingly, uh, you know, decolonializing teacher eight years ago. I'm still not now because I'm figuring out how to, you know, what and how to do it. Um, And like you said, I don't think, I'm I'm not sure it can be dismantled completely, which is, in a sense, relieving because it makes me feel like, okay, I have time to figure this out or we have time to figure this out. And I think it would take collaboration as well. But I mean, step one is just admitting that, hey, like we weren't, we haven't always been on board with everything. Um, I mean, I haven't, and I can say a lot of my colleagues haven't either. So yeah, I think that, you know, I mean, because I have colleagues that are very into decolonizing gender or and I have others that are very into decolonizing, um, you know, standardized language. And you can't be into one and not the other, because <laughs> a lot of our Spanish speakers have indigenous roots, and those indigenous roots didn't, you know, those languages didn't have conceptualizations of grammatical or social gender expressed in language. So yes, of course, we need to think about that, and we also need to. And, and Spanish is a great example of a language that where it's really possible. Um, there are other Romance languages and languages in general that where it's much more difficult based on the vowels available. But, you know, if you're going to decolonize gender, you need to decolonize standardized language too. You need to accept language variation from your students. You need to, to value translanguaging. It's not, you can't just, it's not one or the other. It's not one, yes, yes, this, but no to that. Um, I, so I think, you know, it takes a lot of, kind of stepping back and looking at how our own prejudices have, our own discriminations have formed us and, you know, how the system has really formed us to keep or maintain those discriminations. But 
but it does, it takes a bit, a bit of work and it takes time. Like oh. we're not, we're not all decolonializing experts after, you know, a year of a lot of social justice news <laughs> you know, and, and a lot of really great literature it takes, you know. You know, and then there's there's also the thing to be said, like I've put this podcast, and, you know, you could put things in magazines, but like a lot of the stuff we're learning is going to take us a while to figure out. People right. who think that they're already on the right side of things, and I'm not saying that we're not, I'm just saying if people's right. identity is wrapped up in being right, because I think that's right. also part of the colonial structure is that mm -hmm. there's a righteousness to it. And there's like a, a bipolarity that's constant where you're either good or you're bad. And that's really, I mean, our society is very, I mean, with everything, we're very informed by, by binary structure. So, you know, the vaccine is bad. So that means that not getting the vaccine is good or COVID's bad. So the vaccine is good. It's like, we don't have to look at it that way. It could be more like COVID is bad and getting the vaccine is better. So I'm going to do that. <laughs> And like, but I don't have to enjoy the vaccine. I don't have to like getting shots. It just is, you know, but it's like this very, very binary society we live in where we have to justify one side or the other. I mean, I like getting shots, but. Um... <laughs> I don't mind, I don't mind them. I don't mind them at all. It doesn't bother me. Um, but, I mean, I don't mean like I'm enjoying, I'm just saying like. It's, I, I find it fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I'm just like, yeah. Oh. Oh. I like watch it. I watch them. I'm, I'm really, yeah, I find it kind of interesting. My wife hates it. Um, <laughs> she hates it. She hates it. Um, but anyway, well, you know, I mean, there's always the question to be asked if it's even possible in these academic structures to do any of this because, right. you know, the structures are inherently hierarchical. But on the other hand, it's really hard to do anything if you don't have at least one hand in these things. Right. And so, yeah, you're always going to be dirty to some ex extent. And, you know, there's some projects that I'm working on where we are trying to do it outside of these structures to some mm -hmm. extent. But part of the value is that all of us have one hand in these places. Right. So, like, we're not just some people having a conversation because it's a, a, whatever you want to say, no one's going to listen to us. So you got to get people to listen to you <laughs> if you want right. something to change. Well, yeah. even when you, yeah, like when you think about activism, I mean, I think about U.S. activism and it's oftentimes very connected to academia. Um, and that, you know, that's, that can be really good because a lot of things can get done. I mean, because you can take the effort. I mean, a lot of the amazing feminism like u.s feminism is rooted in black feminism is rooted in abolition feminism and and it doesn't always get credited as such um and that has seeped into academia in very productive ways but sometimes it goes invisibilized when you go to somewhere like italy where feminist activism was largely on the streets and very separated from academia then you don't get this then you don't get this kind of change in the system because academia in Italy is still very misogynistic so that there was a disconnect um but you know I don't know I see the struggle there where if you don't kind of have the institution on your side 
how do I get this information out? How do I get this, you know, in classrooms? Yeah, because one thing I've been thinking is, you know, it's like, man, I just want to create, maybe I'll do some, my own sort of, not just me, mm-hmm. but like I've been thinking with some people about other sorts of publication, other types of dissemination, right. but it's just like, as much as I don't like the journal system and I try not to spend my time randomly submitting, it's just like, but they're just not that pay attention to me. <laughs> and so how do I balance that? And I don't have an answer right. to that. And in fact, in fact, this podcast is my answer to that. Uh, right. Because, you know. That's one way. That's one way to do it. And, you know, yeah. it's not going to get, it's not necessarily going to get as many people's syllabi to change. But let me tell you, I have to turn it off after this. But, uh, and I've said this before. Uh, in the first season, uh, I gave a presentation at the same conference I'm actually going to in November. Um, we'll have a mask on this time, but I didn't have it on two years ago. And uh, I gave a presentation about one of my early academic topics. And there's like 35 people in there. It's a pretty good crowd for mm-hmm. an academic presentation. Yeah. You know, it's nice. It's cool. Um, and then I recorded it. And I put it on onto this podcast and it was like 300 people. Now, that's not a lot of people. I don't get that many people on this podcast. But let me just tell you, it's still more people than are at a conference right. presentation. So, you know. It's, no, it's, it's great though. It's not to say don't present. It's to say what we're trying to do and do things in more than one avenue might be the mm-hmm. best way forward. But then of course, then you get into the like, who has the capacity to do that? So on and so forth. But I think if you're someone who really wants to challenge these things and you have the capacity and the time and the ability, then it is mm-hmm. an obligation of yours to try to put things out in as many ways as possible. Absolutely. And just see what shakes out because Definitely. it's just not, not gonna happen. And, 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 you know, I think sometimes we just need to jump into the water without our bathing suit on because we don't know what's <laughs> at the bottom of the lake. Right. <laughs> <laughs> turns out great metaphor. it was fine it was a little cold because yes. <laughs> it wasn't actually as hot as you would think it would be in the jungle at night because the jungle is actually kind of cold at night I uh, all right folks so uh thank you for joining me gabriella it was a, thank you. a fun conversation um definitely some people got some ideas out of here and uh i appreciate you spending your time with us thank you it's been a pleasure <laughs>